This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Last week we began a two-part study, at least two parts, of Bible classes and women teachers because I've had requests uh, to deal with this subject and we're going to do that. And uh, I'm going to start also, <coughs> pardon me, i got some drainage today. I'm going to start this Wednesday on the internet teaching this same topic. And so if you want to go back over what we do today or what we did last week, that will be this coming Wednesday on the internet. We will live stream it. We will do at least two parts on the internet probably. And uh, so you'll be able to catch it by video there and you'll be able to access that anytime you want to. The subject's been requested. We intend to deal with it and do so as kindly. It's a controversial subject. It has divided churches. It's divided families. It's divided brothers and sisters in Christ. It continues to do so and you know, you always hate to see division among God's people, but sometimes that's the way it is. And a lot of these controversies like this and whether we should have a one man to be the preacher or, or such topics as this are just controversial. You can think of topics like marriage and divorce. That's divisive to people and that's controversial and we're probably going to deal with that on the internet as well. There's just a lot of these controversies that we put back because we've tried to be more evangelistic, but the time has come that we need to deal with them. And uh, people are wanting to study these things. They want to know what the Bible teaches. And so certainly we want to give you what the Bible says about it. We'll do it as kindly as we can do it. If you have uh, one of the charts that I gave you, turn to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 through 40. You'll find it on the inside. You'll also find it underneath the title on the front. It's larger on the inside if you prefer that, that uh, larger font. Now what I will try to do today is go back and rehearse what we did last week. So many of you that are here today weren't here last week. So you missed the first part of this study. I will, I will put as much flesh on the bones as I can do for you from last week. And then we'll move on in our study, okay? So I'll bring you up to speed as much as I can by taking you through this outline and things that were covered in the last study, the first part. In verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the churches and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. 
What came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. We'll come back to these verses in just a moment and analyze them a little bit more closely. But first, just some introductory remarks, if I may. I pointed out last week my background. I wasn't raised in the church. I was raised in several different denominational churches. In fact, the earliest church that I attended, we had a woman pastor. So when I went to, to church on Sunday morning, I heard a woman preach every week, every week. When we had revival meetings, many times we called in a woman evangelist, and she preached for a solid week. Night after night, I heard women preach. The women in our church, uh, when I was just a small boy, led most of the prayers. We had testimonial services where folks would stand to tell what the Lord had done for them, and most of that was done by women. Seemed like we had a a church where the men didn't want to participate very much publicly, so most things were done by women. All of my Sunday school teachers were women as I grew up, and I was used to going to Sunday school every week. And so this was just my religious background. Then I obeyed the gospel at a congregation of the Church of Christ several years later when I was in my early 20s. It was a congregation that had Bible classes with women teachers. I didn't think anything about that because that had been my experience as a boy. And so I simply went to class. In fact, I taught one of the classes myself. And it was during that time that I began to study this issue. And as I did, I began to get quite nervous because I could see that we were in violation of the Scriptures. I was walking the floor at night. I, I just was uneasy about it. Finally, I, I gained conviction that we were wrong. And I went to the elders. We never, had a, we never had an argument. We never had one cross word, not one. And I simply told them that, that we would be leaving, that they would need to get somebody to teach the class that I had. And so we left that congregation in favor of going to a congregation without classes and women teachers. This morning, I want to share with you and the reasons why I made the decision that I did. I've never been back. That decision was made about 1974, 1975, somewhere in that time frame, and I've never, never been back to the class system. Uh, I believe that there are good biblical reasons not to have Bible classes and women teachers. I want to show you what the Bible says about the role of women and about the classes and such things as this. Now, interestingly enough, there was no such thing in this world called Sunday school till 1780. You can do your own research on the web if you'd like to do this. There were some scattered little uh, examples of, of what we might call Sunday school, but there was a fellow in England, Gloucester, England, by the name of Robert Rakes, R-A-I-K-E-S. And uh, England at this time was in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And during this time, it was, a, it, was a, it was a difficult time in the history of the world. Children were working in factories. Everybody was so poor that you had to work. And there were a lot of orphans 
there were a lot of children in, in England whose parents had been thrown in prison. And these children were just out on the streets, and if they didn't work in some fashion, they wouldn't eat. They had nothing. Nobody took care of them. Nobody was concerned about them. They worked six days a week, 12 hours a day sometimes in these factories. They weren't getting any education. Mr. Rake saw them, had compassion upon them, and felt like these children need to be taught. They need to know how to read and how to write. They need to know arithmetic and such things. And he developed a concept that he called Sunday School. He decided that since Sunday was the only day they had off, that they should organize schools and teach these kids at least on Sunday because they worked the other six days. And it was called Sunday School. And part of that day, a good part of that day, was spent teaching the children to read and write. And of course, when they taught them to read, the Bible was the textbook out of which they learned to read. They learned to read Scripture. And they, when they did memory work, they memorized Scripture. And so the Bible was one of the main textbooks, you know, for the instruction given to the children until such time later as other books were developed. <coughs> um, part of the day then they were taught to read, to read, to write, arithmetic, and things like this. And another part of the day they were taught the Bible itself. They were taught the Bible. They were taught morals. They were taught the scriptures. And so it was called Sunday School. Now this was secular in nature, you've got to bear in mind, it was not attached to churches. But it wasn't very long in England until the churches began to see it. The Church of England, the Anglican Church, the State Church saw it. Other churches saw it. The Baptist Church over in England saw it. And they adopted the practice. And uh, before long, Sunday school sprang up all over England and all over Europe. As America was colonized, it was brought over to our shores. The denominations brought their doctrines over in their churches and established them here in America. And then the Sunday school was one of those practices that came along. Churches of Christ, when, when the movement started real heavily in this country in the very early 1800s, some of the churches began to adopt the practice. It was not popular for a while. It was opposed. But eventually, by about 1900, by the turn of the 20th century, a majority of churches of Christ had put in Sunday schools, had put in a Bible class system. It was still controversial. Brethren debated it. There were heated debates, great debates held all across the country, debating whether or not the, the church should employ uh, this method of teaching. And so brethren drew up sides, they aligned over it, and lines of fellowship were drawn, and division occurred until we have the situation that we have now. I, I want to study with you then the reasons why many of us oppose this practice and why when we started this congregation we did not choose to use a Bible class system, and we oppose it here in this, in this place. Now you may not agree with this when I'm through teaching this. And certainly you have your right to your own belief and you'll answer to the Lord for your belief just like those of us who oppose it will answer for our belief. We're all going to have to answer to Christ. Let's just open our minds this morning and try to get our emotions out of this because I don't want you 
to have the idea that I don't think Bible classes work. You can learn the Bible in Bible classes. Nobody's disputing that. The issue is whether we should use it, whether God authorizes it or not. You know, you can, you can, you can learn the Bible from a woman preacher. But the question would arise then, are women authorized to preach in the church? I'm, I wouldn't stand, uh, sit here this morning and tell you that you couldn't learn the Bible from a woman who preached. You certainly could. But would it be scriptural to have a woman preacher? See, that's the issue. And so you've got to get your emotions back out of this in order to see what the real issue is. Does God want this practice? And there's really two main questions to be answered. Number one, are the classes assemblies of the church? Number two, if they are, are the practices within them scriptural? And if you'll answer those two questions, you'll solve this whole issue. Now, last week, uh, if you'll look at your outline on the front, I defined some terms like assemblies and like the word church. And we talked about how we'll be using the word church in, in regard to church assemblies. And then we did a complete study of the scripture that I just read with you, 1 Corinthians 14 and verses 26 to 40. And I'd like to go back and look at that with you very briefly. I do not have time to give you the detail that I went into last week. But if you'll notice verse 26, look at the text up there now. How is it then, brethren, when you come together? So the Bible tells us how to assemble. We are to come together. And I challenged everybody last week to find in the New Testament where the leadership of any church gathered its members for the purpose of being taught the Word of God and then divided them into groups or classified them by age or gender or by any other means in order to teach them. The early church always met into together arrangement. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Acts 20 and 7, upon the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. You'll always find the church meeting in a together arrangement. There is no exception. And I'm not telling you that Christians did not do personal studies, one-on-one -on -one or group studies with people in their homes as private individuals. I'm saying that when the church was gathered, it always met in a together arrangement. There is no exception to that. And if you can find one, I'll be glad to entertain it and look at it with you. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. They were to come together and all things were to be done to edify. He said, uh, if any man speaks in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or three, uh, or at the most by two or three, that by course or in turn, and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, keep silence in the church. So God does not permit us to speak in a language unknown to the assembly unless there's an interpreter. That would apply if we bring a brother over from India or Nigeria. If we don't have an interpreter for their language, whether it be Ibu, if they're from Nigeria, or uh, Telugu, if they're from India, or whatever it be, then they are to keep silence in the assemblies. God wants, uh, in this chapter, He wants good order edification to take place. And so he's given these commandments, and these are commandments, not, not, they're not suggestions. He says in verse 29, let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be, re be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, 
for you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. So we are to speak one by one in these assemblies, one at a time. That way there's no confusion resulting when more than one is speaking. The Corinthians, for some reason, since they had miraculous gifts, they had members that were getting during the assembly a special revelation from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit would just give them a message. Some of them had the mistaken idea that they could just stand up and, and speak that message that had just been given to them anytime they wanted. But somebody else might be speaking that had gotten one of those messages. So Paul wanted them to hold their peace until the other finished, and then they would have an opportunity to give the message that had been revealed to them. The New Testament was not yet written, and so in order to have good order that everybody might be edified, the speakers were to take turns. If you'll notice verse 32, Paul said, And the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. You have control over your spirit. <coughs> in other words, <coughs> you have control over when you speak. God is not the author of this confusion that's arising when more than one of you is speaking at the same time. You see, the Lord wants good order in the assemblies. He doesn't want a bunch of scrambling around and bench jumping and falling here and there and acting crazy like things are happening to us that really aren't and people uh, gibbering and jabbering all over and, and just all kinds of confusing things going on because edification can't take place in that setting, see. And then in verse 34, he addresses the women and their role. Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, and that means if they want to ask a question, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And so the role of a woman in the assembly is a role of subjection. It's not that she's inferior, and I, I stated last week to you ladies that Subjection does not equal inferiority. Let me say that again. Subjection does not equal inferiority. Because one has to submit does not mean they are inferior to who they're submitting to. And uh, I use several examples. All of us are in submission to the sheriff of this county. He's not better than us. But our role as a citizen is to submit. The children here today are in submission to their parents. But the parents are not better than these kids. Their role at that age is submission. When Jesus was but a boy, He submitted to Joseph and Mary. This is the Son of God. He was in no sense inferior to Joseph and Mary. In fact, He was superior to them. But you see, the Lord acknowledged His role as a child and set an example of submission for children to imitate. Jesus did that. He humbled Himself, you see. It has nothing to do with being worth less than someone else. We just need to recognize our role. The church is in submission to its elders in a congregation. But the elders are not better than us. Our role is to submit to them because they have the rule over the flock. Understand? And so when you, when you ladies are told in church to be in submission, to be in, in subjection, <coughs> 
God is not telling you that you're inferior to men. He's telling you it's not your role in that setting to take the lead among God's people. Now the Lord has decided that. He has given, for example, the rule in the home to the man. The man's not better than the woman. The husband is not better than the wife. Somebody in a home has to have final say. When there's a deadlock on some major decision, somebody's got to break the deadlock. That's been given to the man to do by the Lord. And so it's just a, it's just a role thing, you see. And in the assemblies of the church, women are to keep silent. We're told that they're not permitted to speak, that they are not to ask questions. That if they have a question, they can get that answered at home or else probably from one of the prominent brethren before or after services. And uh, so it's just a submissive role. And Paul said it's a shame for women to speak in the church. If you want to know what that word shame means, go to 1 Corinthians 11 sometime and it'll talk to you about a woman having her head shorn. And it'll talk about what a shame that would be for a woman to shave or, sh or, you know, or have her hair shorn like that and everything. That's the same Greek word shame as in 1 Corinthians 14.35. It's a disgrace for a woman to speak in church. That's really what the Bible's saying. It's disgraceful. It's shameful. Now, who came up with this idea that it's shameful? Paul? Did Paul hate women? Can you imagine Paul having written the chapter before this on love? That great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, then turning around in chapter 14 and all of a sudden he hates women when he's just taught on love. Now Paul didn't hate women. Paul is delivering the commandments of the Lord. Look at verse 36 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul asked the Corinthians, what? Came the word of God out from you? Did you Corinthians originate this word? Or came it unto you only? Do you have a monopoly on it? Did it just come to you? Verse 37, read with me. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. These are Jesus' commandments. And uh, there's more commandments in this chapter on men than there are women. Ever thought of it that way? Men are to uh, do everything to edifying. They're... When they speak in a language unknown, there has to be an interpreter. That's a regulation on men. Verses 29 to 31, the prophets speak one by one. That's a regulation on men. Verse 32 and 33 is a regulation on men. He gives a couple of verses on women in 34, 35. And then he tells you these are the commandments of the Lord. But in verse 38, he says, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Some translations render verse 38 this way. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. There are people that will not recognize these as the commandments of the Lord. And in that case, we're not to recognize them. They are not recognized. <clears throat> verse 39. He says, wherefore covet to prophesy. And forbid not to speak with tongues. We're not to forbid anyone to speak in a language unknown to the assembly as long as there's an interpreter. Verse 40, he sums it up. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now that's the reason why these commandments are given in chapter 14. 
so that things will be done decently and in order so that there will be an edifying assembly. That's the reason these commandments are given. Now, pay attention to this very closely. You'll find those regulations for all assemblies there in the second column from the left. Look on your chart on the front. Second column from the left and it'll say regulations for all assemblies. Let's read those together. Verse 26, come together, all things done to edify. Tongues are to be interpreted or keep silence. Speak one by one that all may learn. Control your speaking, all confusions not of God. Women silent, they're not to ask questions, it's a shame to speak. These are the commandments of the Lord. <clears throat> if any be ignorant, let him be ignorant, he's not recognized. Covet to prophesy, forbid not tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now those things apply every time the church meets. Sunday morning, Sunday evening if it meets, Wednesday evening if it meets, gospel meetings, any time that the church, the local church is gathered for edification and worship, these commandments, every one of them, apply. Now listen to this. They are a package of commandments. Where one of them will not apply, none of them will. In other words, where, where men don't have to speak one by one, women don't have to be silent. Where things don't have to be done decently and in order, then we don't have to do everything unedifying. In other words, where one commandment here will not apply, none of them will. But where any one of them applies, all of them do. They are a package. And they apply in only one place. And that's church assemblies. That's the only place they'll, they'll ever apply. When we're not in the assemblies of the church, these regulations are not binding upon us. We're not under obligation to observe them because they only apply when we're gathered together such as we are here right now. See, That's what they're meant for. All right? Now, flip your chart over to the back side. And you'll see some things that I made up for you here. These are, I have the originals on these. These are brochures, uh, church bulletins, and service schedule signs that I made copies of that I have. This first one's the West Side Church of Christ, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, one of the brethren in Wichita gave me this several years ago. Notice in the middle of it, it says Schedule of Assemblies. And then it lists the assemblies. Sunday Bible classes gives the time, 9 a.m. Morning worship at 10, evening worship 6, Wednesday Bible classes 7.30. It calls every one of these a schedule of its assemblies. In other words, this church has Bible classes and notice it calls them assemblies just like it does morning and evening worship and Wednesday Bible study. They're all assemblies. The same thing in the middle here on this uh, bulletin. This is from Ozark, Arkansas. It's back in 1985. Goes back a ways. <clears throat> Under the hand holding the Bible, notice schedule of assemblies. And then it has Bible classes. So what are those classes according to them? They're assemblies. This is a schedule of all their assemblies. See, 
morning worship at 1045, evening at 6, and then Wednesday Bible study at 7. Down in the bottom right, I took this from the Church of Christ out at Baldwin, Arkansas, east of Fayetteville, on Highway 16. <coughs> Notice there, this was in their bulletin. Notice it says Bible study, and that's at uh, 10 a.m. Worship, it's at 10.30. Communion's 11.25, and I pointed out I couldn't preach there because I can't stop at 11.25 like that preacher does. I don't know how he hits that every week. Uh, how, does he, how does he work his sermons where he quits at 11.25 for communion? I don't know. I can't do that. Evening worship at 6 and Wednesday Bible study at 7. Notice it calls every one of these services. Services of what? Lions Club? Boy Scouts? They're services of the church. Bible classes are church services. See what I'm talking about? And I've shown you where brethren that have the class practice know what they are when they publish their bulletins and brochures and service schedule signs. But if you get in a discussion with them a lot of times, they'll say, well, our classes are not assemblies. But you see, when they're not in a discussion about them, they know they are. They know it's church because they have arranged them. They have called their membership for teaching. They have notice up in the right-hand corner, Here's characteristics. They've, the leadership calls the members for teaching. It arranges the time and location. See, Bible classes don't just happen to mention or don't just happen to meet at a certain place and certain time. They are arranged for that place and time by the leadership. The leadership appoints the teachers to teach. And in many cases, they appoint the curriculum that's taught. And then they oversee it as best they can. And what I'm telling you this morning is the classes can't be anything other than assemblies. And brethren that have them know that they are because they publish that fact in their bulletins and brochures and, and service schedules. So I wanted you to see that and have that material. These are authentic. I have the originals. And if anybody says, well, Pat, are you sure they're originals? I'll bring them if you just have to see proof of it. But I don't think you will. I think the copies will suffice. Now, I want you to look on the front of your chart again, and you'll see uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12 there. You'll see a heading called Parallel Passages that Apply Only in Assemblies. I want you to look at that very closely. Look on the left side. You'll see 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let's read it. Paul said, Let the woman learn in silence, with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now he wrote this to Timothy. And uh, let's just notice, he put it in the positive and the negative. In verse 11 it's positive. Let the woman learn in silence, with all subjection. In verse 12 it's in the negative. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So he's put it positively and negatively here. And notice that Timothy now is parallel to 1 Corinthians. I want to read these with you. There's Timothy on the left. There's 1 Corinthians 14 that we read a moment ago on the right. And I want to read a, a, a line from Timothy and then read the line from Corinthians across from it. And let's... Let's look at this parallel. These verses teach the same thing. 
on the left, Timothy, let the woman learn, Corinthians, if they will learn. Timothy, in silence, Corinthians, let your women keep silence. Timothy, with all subjection, Corinthians, to be under obedience. Timothy, but I suffer not a woman to teach, Corinthians, for it's not permitted unto them to speak. Timothy, nor to usurp authority over the man, Corinthians, they're commanded to be under obedience. Timothy, but to be in silence, Corinthians, shame for women to speak. You see, they teach the same thing. And folks, listen, if you'll get a handle on this one truth, and it is true, that Timothy and Corinthians both are parallel, that they teach the same thing, and that they apply in only one place, and that's in the assemblies of the church, you'll solve this class question right now. You'll just solve it right now. Because you see, wherever Timothy applies, Corinthians applies. Wherever Corinthians applies, Timothy applies, and both of them silence women. See, both of them do. So that means that you can only apply them uh, together, and they'll only apply in one place, and Corinthians tells you where that is. They're to keep silence in the churches. See? So these two passages here apply only in church assemblies. Timothy, if you try to apply Timothy, and we have brethren that do, if you try to apply 1 Timothy 2 on women outside the assemblies, you've got to bring Corinthians with it. Because they're parallel, and either one of them silences women. So if you try to apply 1 Timothy 2 to classes, for example, and say that they're not assemblies, you've got to bring Corinthians over with it. And either one of them will silence the women. Look at the language of, of 1 Timothy 2 here. Look at it. Let the woman learn. Wherever this passage applies, a woman is strictly a learner. Let the woman learn. In silence, wherever this applies... She is to keep silence. That's what it says. It's not saying keep semi-silent. It's not saying to a woman you can ask a question or make a comment. It's saying keep silent. It's, uh, it goes on to say with all subjection, not partial subjection. Wherever Timothy applies, a woman's in all subjection. That's just the language. Look at it. 1 Timothy 2 again, But I suffer not a woman to teach. Where this passage applies, a woman can't teach anyone, man, woman, or child. She can't teach here. That's what the passage says. He says, uh, Nor to usurp authority over the man. She can't engage in any activity that's been given the man to do, wherever this verse applies. If it's lead a song, if it's make announcements, if it's head the assembly or head the table, uh, she has a subjective role completely wherever this verse applies. That's why I said it only applies in the assembly. Otherwise, you women couldn't, you couldn't talk the Bible anywhere, you see, if it applied everywhere. Then he says, but to be in silence. And so wherever this passage applies, your role is that of silence. Now, this word silence in Timothy and this word silence over here in Corinthians, Thayer in his lexicon, his Greek lexicon, and Joseph Henry Thayer was a Greek scholar. Thayer says these two words are synonyms. They are synonymous. Both of them mean silence. I didn't have time last week to go through this, so I'll do it this week. I want you to look at point three on the very left column, point three down there, where it says study of 1 Timothy. 
And uh, I want you to look under uh, point B, and you'll see number two under B. 1 Corinthians here, the word for silence is the word sigeo, S-I-G-A-O. Do you see it there? Sigeo? It's Strong's number 4601. The word for Timothy is Strong's 2270 word, and that Greek word there is hesukia. Hesukia is only found four times in your New Testament. In the King James, it's translated silence three of those times and quietness once. But Thayer says these words are synonyms. <clears throat> and now, I want you to uh, look at examples of the use of these two words. Acts 21 and verse 40, would you go inside, down near the bottom, second from the bottom. Look at Acts 21 and 40. Paul is about to address the Jewish leaders. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. And... Uh, He's standing on the stairs there of what's called the Tower of Antonio. The King James calls it a castle. He's just under arrest and he's asked the Romans there who have arrested him to let him address the Jews down below. So he stands up on the stairs here and notice verse 40. The Bible says that when, when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence... He spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, See that word silence? That's the word used in 1 Corinthians 14. That's sageo. It was made a great silence. Now I want you to read verse 40 and come right on down into chapter 22 to the next verse with me. Let's read again. When he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, sageo, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. And he saith, you see that word silence there in 22 too? That is hesukia. That's the word found in Timothy. And here's what's interesting about these two words, the one in verse 40, Acts 21, 40, and the one in Acts 22 and 2. In Acts 21 and 40, the word is segeo, the one found in Corinthians. In Acts 22 and 2, the word uh, silence is hesukia, the one found in Timothy. And the Holy Spirit here through Luke, Luke wrote Acts, the Holy Spirit is using the word in Timothy, hesukia, to show an even greater silence than the word in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me say that again. There are brethren that argue that the word in 1 Timothy 2 doesn't mean silence. Yes, it does. And the Holy Spirit used it right here to describe people keeping a greater silence under Hesukia than under Segeo in 1 Corinthians 14. Isn't that interesting? And yet brethren want to say that the word in Timothy doesn't mean silence. Of course it does. It's used here to describe an even greater silence. See, Isn't that interesting? All right, so understand that parallel there on the front. And then look on the front upper right corner with me. There are six commandments in the New Testament for women to keep silence in the churches. 1 Corinthians 14, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. It is a shame for women to speak in the church. From 1 Timothy 2, 
Let the woman learn in silence. I suffer not a woman to teach, but to be in silence six times. God has told women to keep silence in church. Do you know of six commandments that say, Thou shalt not use instrumental music? We wouldn't think of putting an instrument in here today. Six times God's told women to keep silence in church, and brethren, I don't know how you can say it any plainer. I really don't. That's evidently His will. Now, I want to raise a question to you. That's where I got to last week. So you've had a recap of what we did last week. Now we've got to move on. I want to ask a question of everybody here. Do you know of any scripture in the New Testament, any scripture that says a woman can't teach a man? I don't know of one. The Bible does not teach that a woman cannot teach a man. It does not. Where these verses that require women's silence apply, they apply in the assemblies. The, 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 the application of them is on the place where they apply, not the persons they teach. Wherever they apply, a woman can't teach anyone. But wherever they don't apply, a woman can teach anyone. I'm going to show you this morning four examples. Now, let's talk about what women can do. We've talked a lot about what they can't do. I'm going to give you four examples now where women taught men. Where women taught men. And show you that outside the assemblies of the church, a woman can teach a man. She can teach any number of men. The Bible uh, uh, authorizes her to do that, and we have examples of it. So I don't want you ladies to think you can't teach men, that you can't teach the Bible. <clears throat> the greater sphere of teaching for all of us lies outside the assemblies. And outside these assemblies, you ladies have just as much right to teach as us men do. Now, I'm going to show you these examples, and three of them, I'm going to give you four. Folks, three of them are going to be under the law of Moses. That doesn't make any difference, and I know we're not under Moses' law, but I'm going to say this without fear of contradiction this morning. The subjective role of women since Adam and Eve has never changed. And the teaching role of women from Adam and Eve has never changed. Your role, ladies, has never changed in regard to subjection and in regard to teaching. In other words, what, what women did under the law, you can do today. What they couldn't do under the law, you can't do today. That role's never changed. And uh, I'm going to prove that to you, and then we'll read the four examples. Now turn on your back side of the, of the chart, the very back. You'll be able to flip back and front now, so it should be a lot easier. Read with me from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, there at the top. When Paul told the women in the, in the church there at Corinth to be silent, notice what he said. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. He said, you women at Corinth, you women now are to be under obedience just like the law says. In other words, the subjective role of women today is just like it was under the law. Okay? That hasn't changed. Now look at Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, and he'll take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
Here's what Paul said to Timothy, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why, Paul? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. See, Paul took it all the way back to creation. And when he said for women to, to learn in silence with all subjection, he gave his reasons. Adam was first formed, then Eve. And he said Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. What happened back in the garden was this. Eve took the lead. She went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She began to look at that tree. She got deceived by the devil. You see, he deceived her. He said, Yea, hath God said you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? And she said, Well, he said that we could eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the of a tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And then Satan said to her, Ye shall not surely die. And the woman believed his lie. And when she saw that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, the Bible says she took of the fruit thereof and gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now Adam, when he ate that fruit, knew better. He was not deceived, the Bible says. He knew that he shouldn't eat that, but he listened to the woman and as she took the lead, she got them both in trouble. And so when Paul talked about the subjective role of women here in Timothy, he says that Adam was first formed in Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He took this all the way back to the garden, see. The subjective role of women and the teaching role of women has never changed. Never will. And ladies, what you can do today, women could do under the law. And what they did under the law, you can do today. So when I give you three examples where women taught men under the law, I'm giving them because that's exactly what you can do today. You're under obedience as also saith the law. Okay. Now let's read these examples. They're there on your, the back of your charts. Look at Judges 4, verses 4 through 7. <clears throat> Let's read it together. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and Draw toward Mount Tabor, take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. All right, let's look at this verse. We read that Deborah was a prophetess. What does that mean, folks? Deborah's a prophetess. She's inspired. She gets revelations from God directly. Anybody have a problem with that? God didn't. He revealed His Word miraculously to this woman. Why? The Bible says she judged Israel at that time. Now look at this. you got a woman judge here over God's people. What does that mean? 
Let's say that Antonio and I have a dispute. Let's say that we're living under Moses' law and Deborah's the judge at that time. And my ox breaks out of its stall and it gores Antonio. It doesn't, doesn't kill him, but it cripples him. And he seeks judgment against me for his injuries. You know where we would go? Deborah. Two men would go to a woman. And Deborah would take the law of Moses and she would apply a judgment. She would render judgment against one of us. She would use the law to determine my guilt or innocence because he's charging me with letting my ox get out and crippling. And I'm afraid that Antonio would win that decision from Deborah because she would fine me and penalize me out of the law for letting my animal get out and injure him, see. But the, De but the woman, Deborah, would make that, she would make that judgment, see. That's what it means when it says she judged Israel at that time that they went up to her for judgment. So when you had a dispute among God's people, it was settled by a woman judge. Now see, that took a lot of authority. Her decision was final. Who gave her that authority? God did. She's not in the assemblies of God's people. So individually, when you went to her, she could render judgment out of the law. And notice also here that she sent for this fellow to come to her. And uh, she sent for Barak to come. And uh, she told him about what God was going to do, uh, how he would draw nigh to them uh, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with all of his multitude, and that he would deliver them into to, uh, this man's hand. She called this fellow Barak and taught him God's word, gave him a thus saith the Lord one on one. Because she was not in the assemblies of God's people, she could do that. So outside the assemblies of God's people, women have always been able to teach men. And this is a prime example where Deborah did this. So don't tell me that women can't teach men. They certainly can, and God authorized her to do this. Inspired her because she was a prophetess and made her judge over his people. All right? Now let's go to 2 Kings 22, verse 12 to 16. Let me tell you the background on this. Israel lost the law for a while. They lost the complete book of the law. They're without the law. They haven't been keeping the law. Now they have found the law. Shazam! <laughs> what are they going to do? They haven't been keeping this. They don't know what to do. Hezekiah is the king. So he sends five men to inquire of the Lord what they're supposed to do now that they've found the book of the law. Do you know who he sent them to? A woman. Her name is Huldah. She is an inspired woman. She's a prophetess. In other words, when they wanted to know the will of God, these five men went to a woman. And she taught five men at one time. And here's the example right here. Let's read it. Verse uh, 12 of 2 Kings 22. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest. I want you to notice he's a priest. This is a priest. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hiakam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Azahiah a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. 
For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, to do according to the all which is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakim, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Azariah, five men, went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhaz, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. And she said unto them, now she's talking to five men, and one of them's a priest. And they've gone to inquire of the Lord. She said unto them, Thus saith the Lord. Look at that, folks. That's authority, isn't it? She's got authority over these men. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. So she wants these five men to take that message back to the king, to Hezekiah, that uh, God is angry and he intends to bring wrath on them because they've neglected his word, his law, that's now been found. And uh, you've got a woman right here teaching five men at one time. Does anybody have a problem with that? God didn't. She's an inspired woman. She's a prophetess. If ten men had gone to her, she'd have taught them too. Because she's outside the assemblies of God's people. Now if they were in a gathering of God's people, this woman right here couldn't even have asked a question. She couldn't have taught a child. But you see, the emphasis, the, the silence on women is in the place. There to be silence in the assemblies. It doesn't silence them everywhere. And this woman taught five men at one time. Our sisters need to understand this. You have a lot of liberty outside the assemblies. Okay? Now one, uh, it's still under the law, but it's New Testament. Luke 2, verse 34 to 38. <clears throat> there happens to be a, an elderly lady. She's a widow. She's 84 years old. Uh, her husband, she's only been married about seven years when her husband died, and she's stayed a widow ever since. She's of great age. She stays around the temple continually, serving God with prayers all the time. And now Jesus is a baby. Mary and Joseph are bringing him to the temple. There are certain uh, rites of, of dedication for Jesus, dedication to the Lord. There are certain rites of purification for Mary after childbirth. And so they, they've got to come to the temple with these sacrifices. Now at the temple, there will be a priest. And this is a private setting here. This is not an assembly, even though it's at the temple. This is Joseph and Mary and Jesus coming as individuals to a priest to do according to the law. There will be an old prophet here named Simeon, and there will be a woman named Anna. Let's see what happens here. Anna will teach them. And she will actually word a prayer in the presence of every one of these men. Let's look at it in verse 34. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in. Now, let me, or, uh, let, me, let me say something about Simeon. This old prophet's getting quite old. He's about ready to die. But the Lord has promised him he will see the Christ before he dies. And now the Holy Spirit tells him that the Christ in the form of the baby Jesus is now at the temple 
Now he gets the privilege to see him, just as God promised. And that gladdened his old heart, you know. And when Mary and Joseph brought the baby in, Simeon will take this little baby up in his arms and bless him. He'll bless Jesus. Let's read now. Simeon blessed them. Said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's talking about Mary having to watch Jesus die on the cross. That a sword's going to pierce through her heart. This child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign that will be spoken against. And your heart, Mary, is going to be pierced. It's going to be broken. And then verse 36. There was one Anna, a prophetess, Notice she's a prophetess. She's inspired. The daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, meaning she was only married seven years from her virginity. And then her husband died and she'd been a widow ever since. She was a widow of about fourscore, that means eighty, and four years, eighty-four which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. She coming in that instant gave thanks likewise, just like Simeon had. She thanked the Lord. She prayed right there. And spake of Him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now present on this occasion would be a priest, Joseph, Mary, the baby Jesus, Simeon, at least those five. And now this woman comes in, gives thanks right there in front of them, and speaks of Christ to all them that look for redemption. Can women teach in the presence of men? Absolutely. One other one now from the New Testament in Acts 18, verse 24 to 26. This is the last one I'll give you. <clears throat> there is a fellow out of Egypt named Apollos down at Alexandria in Egypt, who has come up to Ephesus. A very well-educated man, a very eloquent fellow, and he's, pre he's preaching in a synagogue there in Ephesus. Paul has left Aquila and Priscilla there. They're two Christians, a married couple, man and wife. And they're hearing this man preach, and he's in error. And, and uh, Priscilla, this woman, this Christian woman, is going to help correct him. Let's read it. A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. I want you to notice now, Aquila and his wife Priscilla took Apollos unto them. Priscilla couldn't teach in that synagogue. She was under obedience, as also saith the law. There she couldn't even ask a question. But they took Apollos aside, and as a Christian woman away from the assemblies of God's people, the Bible says that they, they expounded unto him. And notice, look at, Look at verse uh, 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, 
whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took and expounded. They is the subject, took and expounded, or the predicate, they're the verb. They, both of them, took him unto them and expounded. She helped expound this word to Apollos. What does that word expound mean? Look at Acts 28, 23. I put it down there for you next to show you what expounded mean. This is the same Greek word in Acts 28, 23 as it is in Acts 18, verse 26. Expounded. And this is Paul when he was in his own lodging as a prisoner in Rome. When they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. That word expounded that Paul did is the same thing that Priscilla did to Apollos. She expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Check me out on that. I have no fear of contradiction. I've looked in the lexicons and know what I'm talking about. This is the same Greek word as the one in Acts 18, the one in Acts uh, 28, 23 is. Okay? So I've given you four examples where women taught men. Now we've got to make an application. What have we seen thus far? We've seen that in the assemblies of God's people, a woman can't speak, teach, comment, ask questions, engage in any activity that's been given to the male. What else have we seen? That outside the assemblies, a woman can speak, teach, read, comment, ask questions, and teach anyone, even a man. That's just the truth. So now here's the question regarding classes. Are Bible classes assemblies of the church? Or are they not assemblies? We've got to put them in one or the other. I'm going to tell you this much. Wherever you put them, they're going to contradict the Bible. They're going to contradict the Bible. I'll show you why. Let's say that, uh, look down at the bottom here on the front, and you'll see a question down there about a third of the way up. Church Bible classes are either church assemblies or non-assemblies. Where shall we place them? That's really the whole question now. If we say that they're assemblies of the church, look at that box. Then they're regulated by Corinthians and Timothy. If the classes are assemblies, let your women keep silence in the churches. It's not permitted unto them to speak. They're to be under obedience, as also saith the law. If they will learn anything, ask at home. It's a shame for women to speak in the church. They would come under Timothy, let the woman learn in silence, with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Wherever Corinthians and Timothy apply, a woman can't even ask a question. She can't comment on Scripture. She can't read. She can't teach anyone, not even a child or another woman. There she's strictly in silence with all subjection. She is a learner. If the classes are not assemblies, then uh, let's look at over on the right bottom corner. If they're not assemblies, if they're like house-to-house -house teaching, 
Women can teach anyone, even men. I gave you Deborah, Huldah, Anna, Priscilla. Now, when it comes to the practices among churches of Christ today in Bible classes, some of you have attended Bible classes. I have. I know what goes on in them. And here's how they, here's how they operate. Usually, the brethren will let a woman teach a class, say, up to junior high. Usually, when the boys get up around 12 years old or they've been baptized, they take the they take the boys, the males, away from women. They can't any longer teach the classes. They will let them teach preschool and kindergarten, elementary, grade, you know, grade school, things like that. But when they get up around 12 or so, 13, you won't see a woman teaching a class. And their, their argument is that she would be usurping authority over the man. You see, they're using Timothy. They're saying, well, 1 Timothy 2 keeps her from doing that. She can't usurp authority over the man. Well, the problem is 1 Timothy 2 keeps her from doing that, period. She used to learn in silence with all subjection. She can't teach anyone where 1 Timothy 2 applies, see. If you apply 1 Timothy 2 to the classes, you silence women completely. Because that's what that verse does. But here's what brethren will let her do. And even in adult classes... They insist that only a male can teach the, uh, the, the classes where, a male, where males are from, say, junior high up. Only men can teach those. But women are allowed to read, speak, ask questions, comment, and teach anyone, of course, but a man. Now, do you know of any scripture? that says a woman can read, speak, ask, comment, and teach anyone but a man? I don't know of any scripture that teaches that. There's not a category for that. See. There's just not. So if you say the classes are not assemblies, women can teach men. If brethren are going to tell us that their Bible classes are not assemblies, then can a woman teach those adult classes? Yeah. She could because we've got four examples down here in the bottom right of Deborah, Huldah, Anna, and Priscilla where women taught men. Of course she could. But you see, they know that their classes are different than teaching in the home. And so they, they won't let the woman be the teacher in those classes, those mixed classes where they're adults and such things. And uh, the reason is they, they know better. Now... Uh, let me show you something here that's, when you interpret the Bible properly, you don't have contradictions. <clears throat> I want to I say this as a class. I better not use that one, had I? Let's say this is a class. And uh, we've got a woman here teaching. She's got some boys, she's got some girls. She's a mother to one of these boys, and one of these boys is her son. At what age does this woman have, uh, have to quit, quit teaching this class 
because she would be usurping authority over a male. Do you have a scripture? Nobody else does either. Most of our brethren say, well, when a boy gets up about 12, uh, she don't need to be teaching him in those classes. Well, where do you get that? We saw where Huldah and Anna and Deborah and Priscilla could teach a male of any age. If these are not an assembly, if the classes aren't assemblies, a woman could teach. Wouldn't matter what the boy's age is. Wouldn't matter if he's a 70-year-old man. See, that's the truth. See, they've just made this up. Sometimes they will say, well, she's got to quit teaching him when he gets baptized. Where's the scripture for that? Where does the Bible say that a woman can't teach a baptized male? It doesn't. They've just made that up. Because you see, at a given age, they will take these boys away from that woman. And they'll say, no, these males are too old now, or they've been baptized. She can't teach them anymore. Well, look at this example I've got here. I've showed you here that uh, this, this woman right here is a mother to one of these boys. Now, let's say they go to the house over here. They're home. And we're told many times that classes are just like home teaching, just like house to house. So now you've got the mother over here, and they've taken her son away from her. She can't teach him over here now because he's age 12. He's been baptized. So now mother and son go over here at the house. Can she teach him over here? You say, absolutely. What if the boy says to her, uh, <clears throat> Mom, I'm going to go out with some of the other guys tonight, and Mother, I'll be in around midnight. She said, Son, I want you in here at, at 10 o'clock. Not a minute later. What if he says to her, Mother, I said midnight, and that's how it'll be. Has she got authority over this boy? She can paddle his behind right there, can't she? She should. <laughs> she can also teach this boy the Bible. You ever heard of a mother who couldn't teach her son at home? That's nonsense. Outside the assemblies, a woman can teach a male of any age. All right, if, if they're going to tell us the classes aren't assemblies, why can't this mother teach her boy over here? If it's not an assembly, and this is not an assembly, what's the difference? See, brethren have not thought this out. And when you, when you interpret the Bible right, you don't have these contradictions. This is what I began to notice where we were attending. It's stuff like this. Let me show you something else. <clears throat> Let's say a woman's got a class here in a, in a church that has Bible classes. And one of the elders would like to go in and oversee her teaching and see if she's teaching the truth. Can he do that? If he does, she's teaching a man. See, according to their own rules, they can't even oversee what they've set up. If this elder goes in to check and see if she's teaching the truth to these kids, she's teaching a woman, or he's teaching a woman, and they don't allow that. See, technically, they can't even oversee what they've set up. 
And when you violate the Bible, these are the contradictions. These are the kind of things that you run into. And I wanted you to see these things. These are things I began to notice years ago that prompted me to just leave the system because I couldn't defend it. I was getting into discussions with other brethren and uh, getting my clock cleaned. And I could clean my own clock. When you can clean your own clock, it's time to change. You know. Now, I gave you another chart today when you came in. It's got a picture of the ark on it. So let's use it right quick and I'll close and sit down. And uh, you'll have this study and you can make up your own mind about it. Let's look at us and the ark. And I want to show you a parallel to that in the classes. Uh, read underneath the ark with me. Let me give you the background here. The Philistines came on one occasion and raided Israel and they took the ark of God. And they took it back to Philistia. They took it down to uh, their temple the, uh, of their god, Dagon. They took it down to Ashdod and some of these places. They set it up in their temple. And during the night, uh, they had a fish god called Dagon. And, and uh, during the night, that, that idol fell down and worshipped uh, to the ark here. And when it did, it fell over and broke itself in pieces and became a stump. <laughs> you know. Also, God cursed the Philistines because they had the ark down there in their country. And they got so tired of His curses that they put it on an ox cart. And they sent that ark back into Israel. It wound up in the house of Abinadab. And God just blessed Abinadab up one side down the other because look at those angelic beings on the top of that ark. That's called the mercy seat and those are cherubs. God's glory dwelt between the wings of these cherubs. When He came down and filled the tabernacle or the temple, this is where God dwelt. That is a very holy piece of furniture. Inside this ark, brethren, are the two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. That's where they kept them. If you ever wondered what happened to the Ten Commandments, they kept them in the ark. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's an ark containing the covenant, see. Also inside this ark was a golden pot of manna during their wilderness wanderings when God fed them with manna from heaven. They collected a, a bowl of that, a golden bowl, and they kept it in this ark. Aaron had a dead rod, just a wooden rod, on one occasion that budded overnight. It just sprang up buds on an old dead stick, green buds. They kept Aaron's rod in this ark that budded. Those three things. And there was a book of the law inside the ark. This is a very sacred piece of furniture. And God, of course, is present with it. And so Abinadab is just getting blessed. David is up at Jerusalem. He is king. He built a house, a place for this ark. And now he wishes to move it. He wants to take it from Abinadab's house up here to Jerusalem where he's prepared a place. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But you see, God had specifically told him how to move the ark. He had a way he wanted it moved and handled. There were certain people that weren't to handle it and others were. <clears throat> now in verse, 1 Chronicles 13, 
verse 7 to 10, right underneath the picture of the ark. Read with me. They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, with singing, with the harps, with psalteries, with timbrels, with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of, of, of Kidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. That's 1 Chronicles 13 now, verse 7 to 10. Now we see a guy named Uzzah get killed. He lost his life. Why? Look over on the left side. Here's the law of God concerning how to transport this ark. Verse, uh, this is Deuteronomy 10.8. <clears throat> At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Only the Levites could touch this ark. Look at the ark and look at the picture. See the poles in the side of it? It's got rings up in the corner. It's got poles run through those. Those are called staves. They are to be hand carried on the shoulders of the Levites. God wants this ark hand carried wherever they move it by only Levites. That's, his, that's what he says. Look at verse, uh, look at uh, 1 Chronicles 15 too when David finally wised up. David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. Uh, for them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto Him forever. In 1 Chronicles 15, 15, the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And we read in Deuteronomy 4 and 2 when the law was given back there, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So God had been very specific. I want this ark born by Levites. They are the only ones that can touch it. David now has got a better idea. You see, folks, this is human nature. The wheel's been invented. Why do we want to go down there and hand carry something when we've got a wheel? Why should we hand carry that ark? Let's put it on an ox cart. That's what the Philistines did when they sent it out of their country. Let's just bring it up to Jerusalem. It's a new cart. See, that sounds real good, doesn't it? It sounds just as harmless as it can be. David's intentions are just wonderful. But you see, God didn't want it carried on an ox cart. He wanted it hand carried. He was very specific. When God tells us what He wants, we don't have an option. God didn't want us in Ohio anywhere around that ark. The Levites were to move it. And they weren't Levites. They were the sons of Abinadab. And now they're messing with the ark. The wrong people, see. David got Uzzah killed. He finally wised up. Now if you'll read in the bottom center, the very bottom scripture. 1 Chronicles 15, 11 to 13. David called for Zadok and Abathar the priest, and for the Levites, and for Uriel, and Isaiah, and Joel, and Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Amenadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, 
that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought Him not after the due order. David said we sought God, but we didn't seek Him after the due order. I think that brethren who have Bible classes with women teachers are seeking the Lord. I think they seek to do good. I think their intentions are wonderful. But they're not seeking God after the due order, and that's the problem with them. You see, an ox cart will actually work for moving an ark. It will. And Bible classes will actually work for teaching people. They will. But the problem with either one of them is they're not the due order. Now I want you to look at the parallel on the left and on the right with me. Children of God versus modern day Christians. And back here under the law, they sought to do a good work. They violated the commandments. Over here under the modern day Christian, they seek to do a good work, but they're violating commandments. Over here on the left side, the Israelites wanted to transport the Word of God. They wanted to convey the law. The Ten Commandments were in that. Over on the right, Brethren today seek to transport the Word, to convey or teach the Word of God. On the left, they used a new cart rather than carry it by hand. Today, brethren are using a new cart, a modern-day church Bible class system. That's a new cart. It wasn't even known anywhere in the world till 1780, 1,750 years after the church began, Sunday schools began. Three, they used the wrong persons over here on the left, Uzzah and Ahio. They were not Levites. On the right, brethren today are using the wrong persons, women teachers, not men, in their classes. On the left, they obeyed their ruler here on, on the, under the old law. It was arranged by David the king. On the right, they're obeying their rulers. It's arranged by the leadership or the elders. Same parallel. On the left, they sought the Lord back here, but not after the due order. It's sinful. On the right, they seek the Lord, but it's not after the due order. And this is the problem with it. We're not telling you the classes won't work. We're telling you they're not after the due order. The ox cart will work too, but it's not after the due order. When God has specified something, we don't have a choice. And so the reason we've chosen not to use a Bible class system here with women teachers is simply it's not after the due order. And there are many of us that cannot conscientiously go in among brethren that have this class system and meet with them and participate in those classes because they're, we believe they're against the Scriptures and we're not going to do that. So we keep the practice out of the congregation. And uh, it's not that we think we are better than, than other brethren that have classes. Let me tell you something. Whether or not you use Bible classes is not a moral issue. You are not a better person morally if you don't use classes than you are if you do use them. It's not a moral issue. It's just one of these doctrinal issues affecting the, the organization and practice of the church that God is particular about, that we believe that because He's particular about it, we ought to be particular. We don't think that we're better than they are. This is not about trying to be better than someone. It's about trying to, to seek God after the due order. And uh, so these are some of the reasons now why 
I made the decision that I did back in the mid-70s, back there, way back there, to stake my lot with those that avoided this practice, and I've done so ever since, and taught against it ever since. Uh, I wanted to share those reasons with you. You've been very kind to listen to me today, and I hope this has not been offensive. I haven't meant a word to be offensive. It's just a controversy. It still divides the people of God, and so it's a little touchy sometimes and sensitive and emotional. And uh, it's not meant to provoke anyone to anger or to be mean-spirited in any way at all, okay? So you can judge now. You have the material. And I'll be doing this again on the Internet. You can follow me again on that. I don't know that I'll use more detail than I have in these two studies with you the last two Sundays. But nonetheless, we'll be making a video of this. And I hope it'll be useful to you. We will leave it up on the web when we get it made assuming we get a good copy made, and uh, you'll have it there for a resource material to refer to when we're through. So we thank you again for the good attention, and we have an invitation hymn now that's been selected in case someone should need the Lord. We're not in a hurry, and if you need to become a Christian, desire baptism, we'd be glad to assist you in doing that. We'll take you this very hour, and one of us will baptize you, the one of your choosing will baptize you for the remission of sins. And we have a place where we go that's warm water and changes of clothing and such things not very far from here. We'd be glad to help you. If you need prayer for some reason, we're certainly not in a hurry either. Whatever your burdens or problems might be or even sins, should you need the Lord today, come forward as we sing and make your wishes known while we rise and sing the song. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.